Hello and welcome to another blockbuster episode of Saved by the 90s. My name is Adam Patterson. With me today is the guy who likes all his popcorn with a big heap of salt, Ken Bakley. Hey, Ken. Hello. You shouldn't, uh, PSA for everyone, you shouldn't have too much salt with your popcorn. It's bad for your blood pressure. Too much sodium. Yeah. Uh, July is the time of the summer blockbuster, and while we're currently living in a world where big-budget studio films no longer exist... We're here to reminisce about how things used to be with a discussion of four July movies that hit number one at the box office throughout the decade. So sit back, shed a tear for your local multiplex, and remember the good old days because this is Saved by the 90s. Red team, mate, blue team, they're on with the new Laramie Super Soaker, XXP275 and 175. Four times the payload of the original Super Soaker. XXP Power Gate shows how much power you're packing. The new Laramie Super Soaker, XXPs, each own separate. What a deal! First up, we're looking at a big-budget sequel to a small but wildly successful science fiction film directed by James Cameron. Released on July 3rd, 1991, this is Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Brace yourself. The summer movie has arrived. Trust me. Mind-blowing special effects with out-of-control excitement. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Rated R. Nearly ten years have passed since Sarah Connor was targeted for termination by a cyborg from the future. Now her son, John, the future leader of the Resistance, is the target for a newer, more deadly Terminator. Once again, the Resistance has managed to send a protector back to attempt to save John and his mother, Sarah. Ken, how do you feel about Terminator 2 Judgment Day? I would say that out of the four movies we're going to discuss today, this is maybe the one that I'm the least familiar with. I didn't really have much of a much of a history with the Terminator franchise. Strangely enough, I might not have ever seen this all the way through but you know which is i say strange just because of how much this is movies you know permeates culture where it's one of those movies where you know if you've seen part of it you begin to wonder if you've seen all of it based on just how ubiquitous it is but uh watching this for the podcast i don't think i had seen it completely but now that i have very good i think maybe this was it was definitely one of the first r-rated movies I've seen. I don't know if it was the first, but it was definitely one of the first R-rated movies that I that I saw as a as a kid. And man, when I saw this movie for the first time, it blew my mind. I was it just so in awe of everything that happened in this movie. I thought it was just the most badass movie i'd ever seen in my life <laughs> and i i mean i you kind of feel that just whenever you're watching it whenever you're coming to it you feel it because it's just like it just keeps coming at you it just doesn't stop it is it is relentless i mean the whole point of the movie is that it's you know arnold schwarzenegger as the terminator he's the t-800 he's coming back and looking to protect john connor played by edward furlong and most of the whole movie is just this cat and mouse game where they're just running from the T-1000 played by Robert Patrick. And, and, and that's it. Like the, the movie is just like set piece after set piece after set piece. And they're all so big and explosive. And I mean, even wa- like rewatching it, I've seen this movie. I don't even know how many times dozens of not, maybe not dozens, but lots and lots of times. Uh, and revisiting it now, like it holds up so well, even for today's like, uh, um, level of effects. 
the the effects yeah. work i think is sort of uh I, I think that it's what one of the things that makes this movie like just it's a classic it's like an undisputed classic yeah it's it is one of those movies where people coming to it now uh such as myself uh really i i think you kind of have to consider that a big part of looking at it now in 2020 is you also think about it in terms of how the language of action filmmaking has is been so fundamentally shaped by it and i'm sure no observation i'm going to make during this review is in any way original uh but just how it is one of those movies where entire landscapes of uh pop culture have shaped in its impact Absolutely. I mean, I feel like this is one of these movies where you can look at the action genre before Terminator 2 and after Terminator 2. I mean, it it was such a a hugely influential film. I mean, not only on a technical level, but just how well James Cameron blended the action with the horror, with the sci-fi, all of that just permeates throughout this movie and the um the fact that it's an r-rated it's a big expensive r-rated movie uh you didn't get a lot of those back then either i i mean at the time i believe it was the most expensive movie ever made or close to it yeah i mean this this remember this came out in 1991 and it had a budget of 102 million dollars which is crazy (laughs) and it's an r-rated movie which is even crazier Cameron's held like three or four successive records for like the most expensive movie ever made. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just how he is. I mean, he's, he's Mm -hmm. a guy that has clearly always strived to push technical boundaries in film. And when you look at his movies, I mean, look at the abyss before this. I mean, that, that was groundbreaking in a lot of ways too. I mean, obviously it wasn't as successful as the Terminator series, but Man, you can see the uh, the, the beginnings of the the uh, CG that he used in Terminator Two in that movie, and dude, like, I I understand like the CG may look dated now, but to me, it still looks pretty good. To me, it still looks really good for 1991. Remember, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is before Jurassic Park. This is before like. The CG was really sort of a, a main driver in big blockbusters. Yeah, I I mean, it's, uh, I think about this almost in the way that I think about another 1991 movie, uh, The Silence of the Lambs. And now The Silence of the Lambs kind of feels like you watch it and you see the next three decades of crime fiction just rolling out in its wake entirely owing in some part to its existence and to think of um t2 in the same way for action and science fiction uh it feels like a unnatural extension but to return to the work to return to the movie even now it, it's it's still in such an impeccably impressive work that you really don't even need that, that additional context it still works and holds up so well it's just so good. I mean, mm-hmm. I th- I think if the movie was was trash, it it would be a, like a completely different conversation. And and, and like I think that uh, even a lot of the movies that we're going to be some of the other movies that we're going to be talking about 
on this show, I think, yeah, maybe they were, maybe they made a lot of money and, and blah, 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 but they weren't very good movies. This I think is fundamentally a good movie. When you look at it from a critical perspective, yes, it's a Mm -hmm. big action blockbuster, but at its core, it's still this really great sci-fi action movie that ended up, you know, spawning this like huge franchise I would, I, I mean, obviously there was a, ter- a first entry before this one, but I would say that this is the thing that really, this one is really what kicked things off mm. as far as the Terminator franchise. Because if you remember in the first Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a bad guy. And yeah. in this one, you know, that, that one was much more sort of horror focused whereas this one is really, really action heavy and you have Arnold as the good guy in this one and he's a badass but he's also very comical in this too I mean I think that one of the things that should always be underscored about this movie is the the humor in it mm-hmm. yeah it, it really does have like such a great overriding uh, set of signature qualities to it that feel unified uh, in this overall vision of what's being created here uh like i think about in the sense of what am i was thinking what am i thinking when i'm coming to a movie like this and uh in the sense that it's a movie that's reputation seems to so precede it and that i think that it is probably pretty likely this is the first time i was seeing it, it a, a lot of it um and i was just thinking like my own conception of like this idea of a movie holding up or working on its own terms and those uh, buzz those sort of buzzwords for lack of a better phrase that I used earlier and I really think what I was thinking is if a movie came out today even after all of this if a movie came out today that was this well paced that had this much of a scope that had this much of just a gr- just a propulsive energy to it would that just still stand out so much uh, aside from everything else coming out? And I think you have to say, yeah, like a movie like this that just has that energy and drive to it. And I think just, just getting back to the, the effects work, um, aside from the CG, which was certainly groundbreaking for the time, um, the, the level of, practical effects in use here the, mm-hmm. the explosions the car chases the crazy motorcycle stunts the uh i mean just that that crazy car chase alone when they're on the motorcycle and oh, yeah. t-1000s chasing them down in the big rig like all of that stuff is so crazy and you just don't see that level i mean there's some movies obviously like mad max like fury road I think brings brings that back. And I think that maybe that's why Mad Max, one of the reasons Mad Max stood out is because when you're watching it on the screen, you're just like, holy crap, they flipped that car. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're just rolling all of those cars and blowing all that stuff up. And that's just not something that we see too much anymore. I mean, no. everything's done in uh in post now nowadays. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that when you go back and watch a movie like like Terminator Two, it, it's still it one of the reasons it holds up is because like yeah that they did blow up that car they did you know mm-hmm. take that truck and put throw it off that overpass and all of that mm-hmm. stuff and it's there's there's a lot of other like smaller things that they did too like i think one of and you can 
see this on YouTube, there's a really great behind the scenes um, video that shows how they did the, there's a scene where when Linda Hamilton's character, when Sarah Connor first meets the Terminator and realizes that he's a good guy and he says like, Oh, you can take out my CPU. You can just destroy me right now or whatever. And they show there's this really great scene where she's sort of taking out his CPU, which is in his head and the camera, it's one continuous shot and the camera is sort of panning around as you're seeing her like unscrew the top of his skull and pull this thing out from inside of his skull. And mm-hmm. the, the way that they shot that is they used a false mirror and uh, Linda Hamilton has a twin sister and they used her on the other side of the mirror and Arnold was on one wow. side and a, and a fake, you know, dummy Arnold was on the other side and they had Linda Hamilton's sister just mimic her exact movements as she was like put like un- unscrewing the the port or whatever in his head. It's such an incredible scene when yeah. you when you look at it. Yeah, and I'm just like to consider like the configurations and logistics of that uh, effect as a, a, a practical matter. And again, I'm probably saying things that have been said untold numbers of times by other people and probably said much better. But I think about that as like, yes, people do talk about the, uh, the CG uh, work in this. And, but yeah, we, uh, as we've been discussing the practical effects, I think there's something about this movie that with, you know, 29 years on, it almost feels like a transitional thing between like two phases of that, uh, technology or that approach to uh how effects are realized like it feels like something that's come after decades of development of practical effects that is using them all to like the most advanced degree possible after all of that uh after all the build-up and all of the uh possibilities of its budget and its resources and also is uh pioneering this uh cg uh this computer technology as well yeah i 100 percent agree with you i mean a lot of people may mark jurassic park as that but i i would argue that it's it's definitely this because after t2 that's when we did see a lot more cg being used and and at first obviously it was just used to like sort of accentuate things here and there like if there's like an alien creature or something that you can't easily make practical they would animate it but then eventually you know like 10 years later everything just everything is just pure digital now and i think it's it's sad i mean like i i I sometimes look at the big effects heavy movies and think about how this like one set piece or this one action bit could look if they just did it in like practical effects and Mm -hmm. it, it, it would almost always look better and when you use cg it instantly dates whatever whatever it is because mm-hmm. the the quality of cg is always advancing and things are becoming more complex and all of that so when you see a movie from like the early 2000s that's just loaded with cg you're just like oof like that doesn't mm-hmm. look great you know yeah so yeah I, I think in a lot of ways this is a tremendously influential film that that sort of shaped the genre for for years to come and i think we're still feeling the ripple effects of it i mean just last year we we had a new terminator movie just last year so there's Mm -hmm. there's been six of them there's six terminator movies 
<laughs> and, and all of them are bad, except for two. <laughs> and one and two are the good ones. Everything else is bad. Like, they just can't quite get this, this uh, series right. And I'm not sure uh, why. I was trying to do a little bit of research into the subsequent Terminator movies uh, because I, you know, of course, knew last year that there was one coming up. I didn't know much about the franchise as a whole. And it seems like at some point, the Terminator movies or maybe just this last one. They try and retcon the other Terminator movies. The yeah, the uh, the newest one, the last one that came Mm -hmm. out, the which in all fairness, I think that that I can't even remember the name of it. Dark Fate. Is that what it was called? Terminator Dark Fate or something like that? that sounds, I think that sounds right. Uh, th- that one, com- compared to the other sequels, it's way better. It's a- above mm-hmm. and beyond uh, the other sequels from three from three on, but it still doesn't come anywhere close to part two. Yeah, and the reason I uh, observe that is that I think that kind of does establish how much the franchise will always be thought of as you know these first two movies and then the other ones especially if you consider the notion that the the other ones then start establishing uh separate timelines yeah well i just forget about all those other ones yeah just these are details that are that are kind of getting off track but that's what i thought about after i was looking at this because i was trying to read about it and i just ended up getting very confused since we're discussing number ones at the box office I feel like for for a lot of these movies, we should discuss you know what 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 these movies made. Again, this is an R-rated movie. Budget of one hundred two million dollars. It grossed in the U.S. according to IMDb, uh, two hundred and five, almost two hundred six million dollars worldwide. You're looking at just under five hundred twenty one million dollars. So it absolutely crushed at the box office, and it's no surprise. It's, to why they wanted to make sequels to it. But the interesting thing about this, and I know that this is like just rehashing something I already mentioned, but uh, the last big budget R rated movie that I can think of that was like a big action movie was Deadpool. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that when you look at Deadpool, there's, there's some similarities like action wise to this. Uh, it's, It's about a superhero who can't die. It only had a budget of $58 million. Hmm. And the the U.S. gross was three hundred and sixty three million. Obviously, that's I mean we could adjust adjust this for inflation, and these numbers would probably be a little off. But I just think it's interesting that at some point the studios completely lost faith in R rated, like big budget R rated movies. Was Birds of Prey R rated? That was yeah. That had a budget of a hundred million. Oh, did it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But no, to your point. Yeah. It seems just a wild swing. And I'm perhaps, uh, if my understanding of like the general history behind this production is correct, it wasn't a swing that the studio was taking on making on purpose, but rather got there. Uh, just a wild swing to imagine like this, uh, an R rated sequel to a movie from several years earlier, uh, becoming the most expensive movie ever made. Right. Like that's that's just the entire narrative of that production is just impossible to imagine, and when, according like in accordance with current expectations. Yeah, and when you look at like the budget of the first Terminator, six point four million. That's it. 
So you, mm-hmm. you go from a budget of six point four million to a hundred and three million. <laughs> that's just that's crazy. But I guess you know, uh, looking at the worldwide gross on the first Terminator, it made seventy eight million dollars, which is pretty damn good. And this mm-hmm. is back in nineteen was eighty four. Yeah, eighty four. Yeah. So something to be said about that. Uh, if you, I think it goes without saying, if you haven't seen Terminator Two yet, absolutely go see it. I mean, they made a a ride, an amusement park ride, and it was like one of those three D. wasn't really a ride. It was more of like a three D show. It was pretty good. I don't know if it's there anymore though. I don't. I, they might have got rid of it. Anything else to add about T2 before we move on? Great movie. It is a great movie. I I love it. I mean, it's my favorite of of these movies for sure. Next up, we have an explosive alien invasion film from disaster maestro Roland Emmerich. Released on July 3rd, 1996. This is Independence Day. Recently, scientists discovered evidence of life on another planet. Oh my God. Duh. Independence Day, rated PG-13. I didn't expect that. (laughs) That's a very 90s marketing uh, campaign. (laughs) On July 2nd, a giant alien mothership enters orbit around Earth and deploys several dozen saucer-shaped destroyer spacecraft that quickly lay waste to major cities around the planet. On July 3rd, the United States conducts a coordinated counterattack that fails. On July 4th, a plan is devised to gain access to the interior of the alien mothership in space in order to plant a nuclear missile. So, the, uh, the, uh, the other three movies, beginning with this one, the other three movies we'll talk about on today's podcast, I am, in contrast to T2, very, very familiar with going in. I've seen Independence Day uh, many times in whole or in part. Uh, for some years, I would watch it on or around uh, July 4th every year, like a lot of people. And one thing that I will say before we really start to get into it is that one thing that's always fascinated me about the general understanding around this movie is that it also feels like a really pivotal moment in like this ubiquitous marketing uh, of of a movie like just Mm. that took it and then just took it to like a completely different level based on what I've read, but I don't remember it. I have no memory of it, so I can't comment on it. But Adam want to talk about that? Oh yeah. Uh, It was huge. Oh my God. Independence day everywhere. ID four everywhere, (laughs) which to this day, I can't wrap my head around why they called it ID four. Yeah. But if you, interestingly, if you type in ID four in IMDB in the search box, it comes up. It's the first one, mm-hmm. Independence Day. There we go. Mm. Uh, when I was a kid, and when this came out, I freaking loved it. I was obsessed with Independence Day. I had a giant Independence Day poster on my wall in my room. Uh, it's so a, it's, it's a it's a pretty memorable poster. It is, yeah, definitely. It's um actually the it's the main the main poster that I had uh, the one. It's like on the letterbox page. Mm-hmm. It's probably on the no the one the one that's on IMDb is not the the one that I had I had the one on Letterboxd. Anyway, um, you know I've seen this movie multiple times since I first saw it. 
way back when and uh i enjoy it every time i watch it like i i recognize that this is a cheesy goofy kind of bad disaster movie but man i just i have a blast with it every time i watch it i think that as far as the disaster movie formula goes uh this is about as perfect as you can get with it i mean yeah it's really just interesting to consider uh as a movie because it on some level feels both very much like something that could could be seen as again laying the groundwork for a uh a format of a blockbuster that follows but at the same time it's kind of interesting to consider on its own i mean one thing that i never get over every time i see this movie is it's about 45 minutes before the aliens actually do anything before the action starts and proper there's a lot of setup the in like the first three quarters of an hour like it does kind of take its time or conversely uh, it kind of takes its time uh, to start what might be considered the build up to a very obvious conclusion, depending on how much of a tolerance you have for this movie. Yeah, uh, but, I, I think that they do a good job of that. I, I actually, yeah. I like that. I mean, the fact that they, no, took, I like it too. They I t- just, I really do. They took their time in introducing these characters. You have a very large ensemble with this movie. You have all. You know, it's not it's not looking at this alien invasion from just one angle. You have all of these different groups, like Judd Hirsch's character and Randy Quaid and uh, Jeff Goldblum. Bill Pullman is the president. Will Smith. Yeah. So you have all these separate characters and how this this uh, alien invasion is impacting their lives. And it goes through all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, I still think that it's just uh, it's just big, yeah. dumb, big, dumb fun. Yeah, but it is interesting to uh, to really think about just the amount of table setting that it goes through to build to a cast of this size, where it feels like there are relatively few, or maybe I'm just not thinking hard enough and I'm missing a bunch of very obvious examples of blockbusters that really would take the time to create an ensemble like this large that at first seemed to have absolutely no central connection at all. Yeah, uh, I mean, usually with disaster movies like this you have a group that's pretty much all together or you introduce people in such a way that you don't have the need or want to to actually develop these characters and you just kind of throw them into a situation and we get to know them as as we go i think that it that the the setup and the pacing works pretty good in this movie despite it being nearly two and a half hours long which Mm -hmm. one might argue is a bit too long for this movie but it is you know a big boisterous <laughs> you know to whatever de- to whatever degree i feel uh that this movie might be too long it's maybe like towards the end of the second act as it runs up into the third uh, i completely agree with you that i think like the setup of it is actually really well done and it takes its time in a way that pays off pretty well sure and i, I think that still talking about the characters i think that the it goes the the fact that you have this eclectic cast of really likable funny people in here Mm -hmm. uh almost every character is uh likable and you want them to succeed and you want to see them get out of this 
okay. I mean, you know, from Jeff Goldblum just doing his Jeff Goldblum thing to Will Smith is the cocky pilot to Randy Quaid is the, you know, crazy conspiracy theorist pilot. Mm. And, and Bill Pullman is the president too. Like it's really strong central cast of characters and just want them to succeed. Yes. It's a very surface value in that sense, but it's a surface value that is effective within its confines and it, uh, and it it works. It just moves pretty well and pretty effectively. And there's a, I don't, I don't know. I don't have uh, a terribly, uh, a terribly high amount to add. I think that uh, this is another one, as you mentioned, that was extremely influential. It was a movie that did have some pretty crazy special effects for the time. I mean, nothing like on this scale had ever been done before. And I mean, we're still seeing movies that rip off this movie to this day. Like Mm -hmm. like those asylum movies and stuff. Like, (laughs) I can't remember what movie it was. Like just like two weeks ago, a movie that basically had this exact same cover and this exact same plot came out. And it was like one of those crappy, you know, straight to Blu-ray type things, but they're still doing it. They're still pumping them out. Yeah. Uh, also, you want to know a crazy thing I just read? Uh, you know how we were saying that uh, uh, T2 costs, I think, $100 million? Independence Day costs 75 <laughs> It costs uh, a fair bit less than T2. <laughs> And they blow up like entire cities in this movie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably due to the, you know, large amount of digital effects in this movie. Now, they do use there's still a lot of practical effects in this movie, mm-hmm. like the the aliens and stuff are mostly done practically. And they look really good. Like I was okay with the 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 design of the aliens. I didn't think that they were anything super memorable or anything, but they looked fine. And there were some really iconic scenes in this movie too, mm-hmm. like scenes that just everybody everybody remembers. Everybody remembers seeing the White House blow up and Yeah, like the entire montage at that forty five minute marker where or wherever it is, of just like the disaster of the disaster film actually starting and kind of like culminating in that entire like very effective build up to it. Uh and then just all all of that coming together, all of the explosions, and then just that immediate like smash cut to black in the title card that says July third that comes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, what 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 a what's your what what's, what's your take on Roland Emmerich in general? I I can't say I really know any of his m- movies or care for them to the degree to which like I have like this certain personal uh like just personal like for independence day uh i've seen the day after tomorrow you know a bunch on you know and it's long life on cable but uh i also know that he made that completely loathed movie about the uh uh loathed like whitewash narrative about the uh the stonewall riots but that's kind of that was him trying to do something different and sailing spectacularly at it but <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't know uh I saw Independence Day Resurgence in theaters and it was terrible. Yeah, um, I, d- I did want to bring that one up. Uh yeah. just I I did not rewatch it for this episode. Normally I like to try to 
rewatch or watch everything in a in a series before we we record and I just couldn't bring myself to rewatch this one. I really hated it. Like despised it, so couldn't bring myself to do it again. It's bad. Like I I have not thought about it since I saw it, but it's bad. The funny thing about it is that since it was so touted as like this is going to be the movie that like starts the greater Independence Day franchise, but it made no money and was very poorly received. But there's uh, so that didn't happen. But the fact that there's just this its website and like there was a, I remember there was this promotional website that I spent like it felt like close to an hour one day close to the movie's release just clicking through it that it was about like trying to set up all of this uh, backstory and filling in the space in between what happened in the 20 years between Independence Day and Independence Day uh, resurgence. Like it had like a history of all the alien technology being adapted into human society. It had like biographies of all the presidents between Whitmore and uh, the uh, president Independence Day resurgence who... Plays the president in Resurgence. I can't the remember. President that Sailor Ward plays in Insurgents. It had biographies of them and all the presidents in between them. It like had a whole history of the world in between the two movies. Uh, uh, presumably, as the uh, uh, try to make it like filling in the gaps in between what was going to be the start of a franchise that would never ever come. Yeah, I think that Independence Day is pretty much a dead franchise at this point. I just. Don't see them bringing it back. Maybe like some kind of. No, I don't even know. I was going to say a reboot, but I don't. I don't even know. Yeah, the thing about it is that it made so little of an impact. Uh, is that it's not like you think of Independence Day and then there was that bad sequel. It's like you don't think of the sequel until it's specifically invoked. Yeah, like I, I think that uh, history will just forget about the sequel. Like I think that. Most people will just be like, oh, yeah, they did make it. It's like Speed 2, you know? Mm-hmm. People just tend to forget that it exists and not think about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is for the best. I mean, Speed 2 has an Oscar-worthy performance from Willem Dafoe in it, as we all know. Of course. That, uh, who About playing a character who received copper poisoning from computers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, speed two cruise control. Uh, yeah. So it was fun uh, going back and revisiting Independence Day. It's a movie that I'll probably watch again. You know, in the near future, it's one that I can just keep coming back to, and it's like sort of this little warm blanket of a movie. Um, it, it evokes like personal memories for me, like uh, going to see going to see it with my dad. My dad's a huge disaster movie buff i think i mentioned that before on the show but um so seeing that with him and him just loving it he loved independence day but uh so there's there's a lot of a lot of fond memories i have with with this and beyond just being a nostalgic thing i think that it's uh still a really fun popcorn movie to to watch even even now Imagine a world where time drifts slowly. A world where music carries you away. Experience pure moods, the perfect soundtrack for your way of life. Direct from Europe, 
This multi-platinum collection has won the hearts of millions. Set adrift with the timeless pleasures of tubular bells. Or take a trip into the unknown with the X-Files theme. No other collection gives you the feeling of pure moods. To order pure moods, call the number on your screen or send check or money order for the amount shown, plus shipping and handling. Rush delivery available. Call now. Pure moods. Uh, I'm sure that that will demonetize us on, uh, well, we don't, we don't make money on YouTube anyway, but I'm sure that that'll, that'll cause a copyright claim on YouTube. But I just had to... I just had to put it in like uh, it was just necessary. Was that also did, did was I hearing things or was there like a Eurodance remix of the X-Files theme in there somewhere? There definitely is. There definitely is. It, it would be a tragedy if uh, if this podcast continues and I never have an opportunity to talk about my uh, the, uh, my great affinity for Eurodance. Uh, DJ Dotto does the X-Files theme. Good for DJ Dotto. In case you're wondering, Pure Moods is on Spotify. I'm looking you at it. You know what? I'm looking at I'm, it right now. I actually did want to know that. Uh, that this, is, <laughs> this is very important information for me now. Yep. Uh, Pure Moods Volume 1 is on Spotify. And apparently they, yeah, there's uh, multiple volumes and they're all on Spotify. Is this the secret, like, parallel uh a version of now that's what i call music that we didn't know about pure moods pure moods volume 73 <laughs> even like this the uh like it's just the moods they're everywhere like there's so many moods but they're all pure that's the thing mm-hmm. they have to be pure it looks like there is like maybe three volumes i see volumes one through three on spotify now, all of those moods that they were playing in the ad sounded different. They seemed to fit different moods. So yeah. you couldn't really just listen to it because if you're in one mood and you listen to it, then, you know, you're in the mood for the one thing and then they start the other thing. And that's a different mood. You just got to listen to the one. Like, whatever mood you're feeling, like, uh, I'm feeling the little tubular bells. You put, yeah. on, you put on tubular bells. But if you're in the tubular bells mood, then you're probably not in the Eurodance X-Files mood, and if you're in the Eurodance X-Files mood, you're probably not in the Enigma mood. There was Enigma in there, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Return to Innocence was in there. Yeah. In fact, uh, looking at the compilation here, there's two Enigma songs featured. So, there's there's that. You got Anya's in there, uh, mm-hmm. David Burns' The Last Emperor main title theme. <laughs> this is just hit after hit, honestly, for me. Yeah, and of course, at the very end, you heard the Twin Peaks theme there oh yeah so that that's that's in there as well so also a mood a lot a of mood of the 90s there's a lot of a lot of hits here you got a yo-yo ma yo-yo ma plays uh Ennio Morricone. so there you go yeah actually let's start the rest of the episode let's just talk about uh moods <laughs> pure moods a year after the popularity of independence day will smith is back on top of the box office again with another sci-fi movie this time an adaptation of a popular comic book series hitting theaters on july 2nd 1997 and directed by barry sonnenfeld this is men in black on july 2nd we are the men in black tommy lee jones 
you have any idea how much that stings? Will Smith. There's only one way off of this planet, baby. And that's through me. Men in Black. Rated PG-13. Event showings Tuesday night opens Wednesday everywhere. After a police chase with an otherworldly being, a New York City cop is recruited as an agent in a top-secret organization established to monitor and police alien activity on Earth, the Men in Black. Agent K and new recruit Agent J find themselves in the middle of a deadly plot by an intergalactic terrorist who has arrived on Earth to assassinate two ambassadors from opposing galaxies. Here we go, another big... 90s sci-fi movie with will smith with will smith yeah later later to do wild wild west which i believe was was that an option for us i can't remember if wild wild west was late june i think that was late, i think we late thought june. it was like june 30th or something yeah very very late june but that was another number yeah. one that was another number one at the box office so hit after You're hit doing really great yeah uh what what did you think of Men in Black, one. M-I-B. I think this is just a great. This is just a great movie. Uh, like you don't have to throw. I don't think you even have to throw qualifiers around it. Like when you talk about um, Independence Day, like for what it is or for the uh, the kind of movie it is. Men in Black is just an incredibly, incredibly well made movie. Uh, like it's so perfectly paced. Like I think that was an observation I made. Um, I rewatched this for this podcast and I rewatched it a few months ago. It's so perfectly paced. It is like, it is a just a great, like ninety-seven minutes. I think it is. I and agree. It just, it's just even, and it moves, and it's great. Yeah, I think that the you you have an inherently great uh, amount of source material to pull from. The just the concept, the concept alone, just lends itself to just so many different things that you can mine and i think that you know starting off with this one in the way that they did where will smith is a new recruit and just that whole training that that whole like training montage at the beginning was so funny and i think that it just sets the mood perfectly for the for the whole movie uh i mean to this day i've seen this movie so many times but to this day i still laugh every single time when they're doing the written part of the test at the beginning and yes. everybody's yes. poking through the paper and they uh, like just that seat is so perfectly paced uh comedically uh, i just i love it um it, I, it's yeah i completely agree with you i think that this is a really great movie and uh i can't say the same thing about the sequels but i think for this one um it is just tremendously fun and i enjoy rewatching it every every time i sit down and it's it's a movie that's on tv a lot and like i'll it's one of those deals where when you're flipping through and it happens to be on you just kind of linger there over it no matter no matter what part of the movie you're in you just kind of sit there and you you always stop on men in black one it's it's one of those movies that really is great for tv just because there's no point where you're going to like uh like head out you're gonna flip to something else to just it you just stay with it it just is so even and there's just so much going on in it like it so perfectly accommodates in 98 minutes what a lot of big movies that are you know 20 30 minutes longer than it uh really wouldn't know how to accommodate and feel just so well contained at the same time mm-hmm. yeah 
I mean, I think like, uh, you know, in, in this one by 1997, you're dealing with a lot more CG effects and stuff, and you have a lot more of that in this. However, I think it, in this, it's, it's pretty, it's fine. Like, I don't have any major issues with the effects work and stuff in this one. And, uh, you know, the creature design is all really good for the most part. You have this really great a set of, like, aliens just everywhere, especially, like, you know, when he first goes into the the MIB office and there's just aliens everywhere and this really creative design on all of them. And the same with the uh, Vincent D'Onofrio who plays this, like oh. the, the skin suit Edgar. <laughs> what a performance. Maybe, maybe my favorite performance from Vincent D'Onofrio. He's so funny in it. And mm-hmm. the, the physical comedy that he just exudes in this where, you know, he, you, you get the sense that, there is an alien inside of him wearing Vincent D'Onofrio's skin as a suit. And like just how he's so uncomfortable all the time where he's like squeezed into it. And like the scene when he's trying to look casual when he's in the van, (laughs) he's just struggling so bad to, to look like he's just casually sitting in the car. (laughs) It's so good. It's such a good performance. Yeah. It's a movie that, lot of good performances in it oh yeah i mean uh rip torn is Mm -hmm. great in this as zed i mean he's he's really funny in this too and i just i think across the board it's just um a really really fun time and i i don't i don't i don't want to say it's perfect there were some things that bothered me and and still bother me especially the pop culture jokes in this i really wish that they didn't include those where it's like oh that that celebrity you know of course he's an alien like those jokes i feel like make them they date it they date the movie and i really wish that they didn't include that stuff but at least it wasn't as egregious in this one as it was in the later ones Mm -hmm. you know for as much as i love this one i really don't think i've seen the sequels but don't bother. I mean, or if I have, I, I don't recall them. Uh, I've seen Men in Black two a number of times, and it's essentially the same as this one, only much worse. Um, it was interesting that they they wrote out Linda Fiorentino's character. They just wrote her out. She's just gone. I, yeah, I, did, I do know that. They, yeah, because they need. I guess they needed to bring in a new a new love interest, so they brought in Rosario Dawson. In the second one and you know she's fine but it, it bothers me when they do that in movies yeah the i remember i only saw the the third one one time and that was in the theater and i remember being really surprised at how much i enjoyed it however i barely remember anything about it that's the time travel one where they go back in time mm. i do remember thinking that that one was a, a lot of fun and then the latest one was Men in Black International, which was more of a spinoff than anything, which I did watch. Uh, I, I hadn't seen it at all, like when it came out last year, I guess. Last year, I remember that coming out. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it was just last year. No, it doesn't. I was <laughs> uh, gonna like take that as three years ago. Uh, yeah, it doesn't feel like it was just last year, but. Was that was that the one where they accidentally put the trailer out and it didn't have any dialogue in it? It was just sound effects. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that. 
yep. Uh, it's really bad. It's it's tremendously bad. Like you have a good cast in it, you know, as as usual, but the movie itself is just so blank and lifeless and hmm. awful. I I really did not enjoy myself with Men in Black International. Mm-hmm. My wife is like a huge Men in Black fan, and she she didn't even like Men in Black International, and she's like mm-hmm. a, she likes Men in Black too, which I think is really bad. Uh, Men in Black had a budget of ninety million dollars, so it was it was a pretty big, big movie. Uh, More expensive than Independence Day. Yeah, yep. And it only came out a year later, so it's not like you know, the landscape of Hollywood changed too much since then. It grossed two hundred fifty million in the U.S. worldwide, almost uh, five hundred ninety million. So made a lot of money too. Uh, obviously, enough to warrant multiple sequels turn it into a, a franchise great movie great performances the uh, uh tommy lee jones and will smith are really great together in it yeah i like it it's good will smith having doing just spectacularly well at, the, at this point because i don't know if you know this will smith he's pretty good at what he does the, the, the 90s were Will Smith's time to shine for sure. Like he was just cranking him out left and right. He's like the rock. He's like the the rock now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you think about like like an era of like star driven movies like this, where it feels like the rock is the only comparison point you can use to let uh, of a current movie star to like previous decades of movie stars or previous decades of like blockbuster filmmaking because Dwayne Johnson is feels like as many people have said like the only person who is still able to like have a career based on the parameters of like a star based movie Mm -hmm. did you know that uh Agent K was originally going to be Clint Eastwood I did hear that yeah that would have been would have been weird yeah, it would have been. Yeah, it still would have been a would have been a different movie. I can't quite. I just can't picture it. I can't picture that. No, I just. Yeah, <laughs> I say it would have been a different movie because I can't fundamentally picture what that would have looked like. And I think I read that the that the Agent J character they had a bunch of people before Will Smith, like um, David Schwimmer was. Mm-hmm. The one, <laughs> Eastwood and David Schwimmer. <laughs> Would we remember this movie if it were Eastwood and Schwimmer? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think it would have been as successful. I really don't. It just wouldn't have worked. <laughs> uh, it's like first and foremost, you absolutely need Will Smith, and then secondly, you need Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. Uh, so directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who made his directorial debut with The Adams Family. And now we we talked about the uh, Adams Family values a while back mm-hmm. on the show, and we both another Sonnenfeld. Yeah, we we both love that. What what is your take on on Barry Sonnenfeld? Are you familiar with his work, or do you like his stuff? Uh, I've liked what I've seen. Um, I remember uh, some years ago. I I guess. Uh, he did RV. He did. Which do. I do remember seeing when I was younger and strongly disliking. I never saw it. Uh, my memory of some years ago is that it's very bad. It looked bad. I 
Yeah, I, I had no interest in it. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a little bit of a, I don't know, kind of a all over the place thing. Mm-hmm. I like, I don't know if he's like sort of a just a a jobber. Like, if he just does what's offered to him, or I watched Get Shorty for the first time last year. That was okay. I really like Get Shorty. I mean, he also did Nine Lives, which was the one where <laughs> the one where Kevin Spacey turned into a cat. So I think the less we discuss that, the better. <laughs> uh, you don't want to talk uh, about that? Um, you want to talk about Nine Lives? So Barry Sonnenfeld starts out as a DP for the Coen Brothers, and uh, Rob Reiner, he shot when we shot when, when Harry met Sally. He shot, uh, uh, shot Misery, shot uh, Miller's Crossing. And then he goes into, uh, into directing. He uh, has done some TV. Uh, and it should be noted he did the first three Men in Black movies. He did one, two, and yeah, three. Yeah, he did it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, at the very least, one thing you can say about Men in Black is that they all have a similar look. Mm-hmm. They have a, a similar aesthetic, and they have a similar tone to them as well. He also mm-hmm. did Big Trouble, which uh, I remember being quite bad back in 2002. That's sort of another like crime comedy. Uh, that had like a really huge cast. I I had to look that up to know what it was because that title meant registered absolutely nothing to me. <laughs> yeah, I get it didn't that. do very well. Yeah, I get that one mixed up with Clay Pigeons, which I don't know if those two came out around each other, but for some reason, like I think Clay Pigeons came out before this, but I don't know. I get those uh, mixed up. Cost forty million and made uh, eight point five. Yeah, it was bad. Our final title this month is another sci-fi disaster movie that was perplexingly once deemed worthy of being on the Criterion Collection, directed by Michael Bay and released on July 1st, 1998. This is Armageddon. It's a meteor shower. This new one you're tracking. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. On July 1st, the United States government just asked us to save the world. Prepare to fight like there's no tomorrow. You think we'll get a hazard pay out of this? Just sit back and enjoy the ride. Bruce Willis, Liv Tyler, Van Affleck. We never quit! Armageddon, a Jerry Bruckheimer production, directed by Michael Bay. Rated PG-13. Starts Wednesday, July 1st. When an asteroid threatens to collide with Earth, NASA honcho Dan Truman determines that the only way to stop it is to drill into its surface and detonate a nuclear bomb. This leads him to renowned driller Harry Stamper, who agrees to helm the dangerous space mission, provided he can bring along his own hotshot crew. Among them is the cocksure AJ, who Harry thinks isn't good enough for his daughter, until the mission proves otherwise. (laughs) That's a direct reading off the uh, online plot description <laughs> at this point like when i when i'm working on the, the script i just copy and paste them like i don't read them because i think it's more fun when we just read them verbatim the the one thing that i don't know maybe says one thing or another about this movie is that it can bear is that this movie can barely differentiate its male characters and the plot description sort of could not even bother to give the Liv tyler character a name oh my god yeah that's true well that's yeah that's pretty typical of michael bay right yeah it's 
dis- disgustingly misogynistic by all accounts, M- Michael Bay, but I mean, which comes in a lot of his films, but yeah, let's try to talk about Armageddon now. Well, yeah, we might get back to, my, well, I'm sure we're going to get back to Michael Bay in a few moments, but the funny thing about Armageddon is that, that I was thinking about is that everybody talks about the, you know, the Marvel movies, the big summer blockbusters and the length, like, oh, these movies are so long. But this movie is over two and a half hours long. I mean, like these movies, the, the long ass, big sci-fi epic movies existed back in the nineties too. Like it didn't start with the Marvel movies. The mere listing of this movie's runtime itself is an invitation to it. The absolute utter <laughs> chaos of it, of it, of of all the of all the movies that we had on the list, um, this is the one that now, again, this is another movie that when it came out, I was a huge fan of it. Saw it in the theater. Uh, I think I saw it with my dad again, and um, I was I was. I liked it. I wasn't like obsessed with it like I was Independence Day or anything, but this is the one that I think I've been most far removed from out of these four. Um, because when I got older and more cynical, I was just like, ah, it's crap. The movie's crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I sort of avoided it for years and years. So I was kind of curious like to see how I felt about it now, revisiting it years later. Um, and I, I don't think it's a very good movie, but um, there's still something about it that I just I really enjoyed myself while watching it. Isn't it beyond the notion of what a good or bad movie is? That's kind of where I've come down on it. Like, comparing this to Independence Day, I think Independence Day is a, a far better movie on pretty much every fundamental level. Uh, but I think that they they share a lot of the same DNA and... I think where this movie falters is really in its characters and development or lack thereof of, of its characters. Um, some, some of them are fine, you know, like Bruce Willis's character is, he's a good character, but everybody else I feel like is kind of just like half, half there. Maybe, maybe other than Billy Bob Thornton's character. I liked him a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like, I feel like one key difference you can immediately draw, uh, between this movie and Independence Day is that that observation that I made that the actual disasters, the big effect set pieces of Independence Day don't really begin for about 45 minutes. Uh, in <laughs> Armageddon, you can opening scene, the very first shot, <laughs> opening scene, when Charlton Heston narrates the the uh, meteor that uh, narrates the impact of the meteor that killed the dinosaurs, which I totally forgot about that that was in this, and I was like, "What is this? Oh my god, this is so ridiculous!" Everything about this movie, I mean, this is this is so clearly a Michael Bay movie. When you watch it, you're just like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. this is uh, you can say it about every Michael Bay movie. But when you watch it, you're just like, this is the most Michael Bay movie ever. But often, again, again, Michael Bay often invoked, never imitated. <laughs> No, I wonder why. Uh, yeah, yeah, you have like people. People have made. There's all sorts of blockbusters out there, but they fundamentally do not look like a Bay movie. <laughs> no, 
Nope, they they don't. Which is funny because uh, my wife was watching uh, Bad Boys. Was it Bad Boys one or two? I came. I think it was one. Bad Boys one. The other the other night, and I'm just like, wow. Yep, there there it is. <laughs> no, you know what? It was two. It was Bad Boys two. Yeah, his movies are. Uh, he definitely has a style. He he definitely knows what he likes. Yeah, uh, it's like this is the epitome of like a Michael Bay, like the peak of Michael Bay, in that at some point during its, at maybe several points during its very long runtime, you begin to wonder somewhere in the back of your mind if you're just going to like spontaneously, I don't know, fall apart while watching it. The... Like either the movie, the universe, or you are just going to like cease to exist at some point. The amount of uh, like pans and cuts in this is there's just... a shot of someone rolling dice across a table that takes like four separate shots. Yeah, it's it's just so much like over stylized uh, nonsense. It's just it's and it's, it's so packed too like this movie's so bloated with like stuff there's so much stuff i mean like you, you gotta think like the, the the premise of this is these these drillers going to an asteroid and drilling a big hole in it and you gotta fill in that that two and a half hour runtime with something so there's like really long training montages like i kind of forgot how long it took them to get to the asteroid it's it, which is so it funny. Takes so long before they say the line sp- about the space dementia. <laughs> it's so funny because like b- huge portions of this movie are just them training to go into space and and figuring out a plan to blow up this asteroid. But Michael Bay, being Michael Bay, is like, well, this is this is boring. We got to put some stuff in there. So he'll intercut it with just like random uh, scenes of the meteor showers like the meteorites coming down and just destroying cities or villages or whatever so you'll like randomly cut to a city being destroyed as they're training mm-hmm. it's it's yeah it's so much um also uh i feel like as you might you, you mentioned that this movie does have a criterion release which has always been the source of some notoriety however i i do think often about that because i what what i do know about the criterion is that it contains a commentary uh from ben affleck on it in which he uh, essentially just uh makes fun of the movie (laughs) such as asking the question he asked michael bay uh how why it made more sense to train oil drillers to become astronauts than astronauts to become oil drillers and apparently michael bay just told him to shut up uh i remember that that was that was brought up at one point in the movie where they were just like oh it's you it's a it's a craft or like you you gotta learn it you gotta learn it from your heart or something like oil drilling it's it's not so much it almost feels like a last minute rewrite just to address people that were going to have the complaint that ben affleck did while making the movie yeah yeah it's it's bizarre that they would send a, an oil rig crew into space. You know what to the save script the is Earth. like. You know what the script the script was co-written by J.J. Abrams, apparently. Oh yeah. Uh, you know what this? I 
like I don't I don't know who I expected to see on there, but it wasn't it wasn't JJ Abrams. Yeah, that's um, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is also like a particular uh kind of like high uh rewrite you would assume blockbuster. So whoever's credited for writing it, there's also like twenty other people that worked on it at some point. Yeah, I'm seeing Tony Gilroy listed here too. This is an More. adaptation. I'm not sure what it's so i mean you just assume that all the drafts are so far removed from each other in a production like this that they're te- they have, they feel like adaptations of the, of themselves yeah that's that's kind of strange based on a script by i'm trying to remember i'm trying to remember what i was uh, going to say you know what the script feels like you know that joke that people have on twitter where it's like i uh trained a bot to watch 1000 hours of a movie of like a movie in x genre and this is what it came up with as a <laughs> script and that the goal is to write just the most surrealistic mishmash of cliches and just completely absurdist dialogue. This is a 150 minute version of that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> this is, this movie basically feels like a Twitter joke. Yeah. You, it really does. I mean, especially when you have Steve Buscemi in there getting the space dementia and he's got space dementia. <laughs> His name's Rockhound. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, Michael Bay. He doesn't know when to quit this guy. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that uh, Six Underground, the Netflix one, but it looked extremely Michael Bay. Yeah, yeah. What really confuses me is like this entire like small network of uh of critical discussion that i'm i've read but i just don't fundamentally understand uh like the vulgar auteurists that are like that just weirdly often uh you see them in like as like i don't know weird bay apologists uh yeah there's a really great video essay that's out yeah, i can't no, really I, 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 I think i know what you're talking about and i've seen it yeah i can't remember who did it um uh apologies i would like to credit them but it's really fascinating how you know when they he breaks down all the like shot compositions that bay likes to use and stuff and it's it's kind of fascinating Mm -hmm. that i think that's also why i kind of said you know there is a distinctive look to them like like often uh you know often invoked never imitated because it's ridiculous like when you see it, you're just like, "Are you kidding me?" It's like it's laughable. It's just laughable. Like I think he's trying to look cool. Like I think every shot that he does, he wants it to look cool. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times it looks way overproduced and just way <laughs> like just a farce. It's just everything's I a mean, farce. The, the thing about it is that beyond the visual look out of it, his movies fundamentally have extremely little respect for the people or the concepts that they're ostensibly about. Right. Like, why else would there be a... Why else would he make a literal three-hour movie about Pearl Harbor that is actually not about anything at all? Yeah. If memory correctly serves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's not that I dislike all of his movies. I think that... um, there is a certain misogyny in, in most of his movies. Uh, yes. Even the Transformers movies. 
yeah, there's also, you know, this... Uh, I have not seen every Transformers movie, uh, but apparently a lot of the Transformers characters seem to be thinly veiled racial stereotypes as well. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, uh, that there's too. also like that. There's also like that incredible level of just completely baffling jingoism in 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 some of these movies. Yeah, I mean, he did make a literally like. He also made a movie that was just about Benghazi. Or rather, I don't know, that just kind of did get taken up. I haven't seen it. I do know it got taken up by uh, a a particular brand of uh, politically repugnant people upon its release. I don't think I saw that. Uh, 13 Hours, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think I saw that. But Yeah, I I can't comment because I don't know what it's about. I just do know that it was... That that upon its release, uh, it was uh, politically co-opted by some very unsavory people. I'd like to see Michael Bay and Peter Berg collaborate. Can you imagine <laughs> a Bay and Berg collaboration? You know, I will say, for whatever people you know talk about, Peter Berg is uh, a filmmaker. They don't talk about it in the same way they talk about Bay. I don't think I'll ever forget. Strangely enough, <laughs> the completely bizarre experience of was it Deepwater Horizon? One, the one with Peter Berg, Aspen Extreme? Oh, yes. Sorry, Aspen Extreme's Peter Berg. Where, where are my matters? <laughs> uh, I do seem to think that he made like a whole like big, he did make a big disaster movie based on Yeah, uh, yeah he, did, he did the Deepwater Horizon on the, one. The, uh, on, the, on the oil spill. Yep. I will never forget conceptually that movie. I can't remember it. I will never forget the concept of it. We also did Battleship too. So, no, can't forget about Battleship. I haven't seen it, but I fundamentally cannot forget its existence. And Peter Berg also did uh, that movie about the the uh, Boston Marathon bombing, Patriots Day. Yeah, he did that one too, which I didn't see. So Peter Berg just actionizes recent history yeah pretty much as, because yes as we all know uh battleship was also based on true events naturally yes yeah i just realized that i was saying that recent history and then i realized I just said battleship so you know the the movie battleship based on th- on events that we all remember anything else to add about armageddon I, I didn't really get a sense like where you sort of land on this movie did, did you i don't know where i land on it so, I rewatched it some years ago and I strongly disliked it. And then I rewatched it for this and I was like, I don't know what to think of it. It just is it. I think a lot about Ebert's review of Armageddon, like this one star screed about it where he calls it like the first 150 minute commercial or something. And I believe at the very end of it, cause I've read this so many times I've memorized chunks of it. He says that after the movie was over, he sees in the, uh, in the lobby of the theater, he saw, a poster that it put up with like, you know, quotes, like, you know, quotes, quotes from blurbsters on it. And one of the lines was like, it'll obliterate your senses. And that's my reaction to it too. Like it just comes over you like a giant wave. You learn about the space dementia. Uh, Charlton Heston narrates the death of the dinosaurs. There's entire chunks of it that are just uh, an Aerosmith music video and so a movie that's two and a half hours numerically and experience wise 
somewhere feels like between, I don't know, 10 minutes and nine hours. And then it's over. I don't know what to think of it. It just is. I, I'm glad you There's mentioned... that I could possibly hate it along the do- lines that I could hate a traditional movie. I'm glad you mentioned the Aerosmith thing. Because mm-hmm. when this movie came out and that song came out, dear God, it was everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Like, I just... Mean, it- it's everywhere in the movie too. I feel like it comes up like two or three different times before the credit. Yeah, it's and I, I, I like I think that the I hate the song. I really hate the song. I hated it back then. I, don't mind it. I, I just can't stand that song. I, I mean, you traditionally I haven't minded it. For some reason when I was heard at this time, I actually didn't like it. I, just, <laughs> I wished it would stop. I just do not like that song at all. And I remember the music video for it too. The music video is pretty bad too. You should Check check that out. It it intercuts like scenes from the movie, but it's like it has its own footage too. So you should definitely look into that 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 music video. One kind of weird thing I did want to point out is that the song's written by Diane Warren, who is you know once we've talked about um below the line as the term is like you know uh art uh artists nominated for Oscars in the same category over and over again and never winning. You know, we ever there was a, that was of course a huge deal and a well deserved deal when Roger Deakins won an Oscar after I think thirteen or fourteen nominations. I think the new title of like noted artist nominated for a technical Oscar never wins is Diane Warren because I'm looking now between 1988 and 2020 she has been nominated for eleven Academy Awards for Best Original Song and has never won. Wow, she has written so many. Actually, uh, you know the 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 um the the first nomination she had was uh, for the Starship song "Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now," which was apparently written for the movie Mannequin. Uh, <laughs> that was her first nomination. Her most recent nomination was it was apparently an original song in Breakthrough. It's that movie with uh, Chrissy Metz from This Is Us, where she plays the uh the mother whose like child fell into a frozen lake but uh survived, and it was like a faith based film. She wrote us and Diane Warren wrote a song for that, and it got nominated. Also, did not win. I, I feel like a couple of times since I've been become like you know a person who follows the Oscars, like the the, the odds on things. There've been a couple times I want to say where and done my predictions where she's been like either out front to win or was like up to win and like you know in the top had a good chance of winning and didn't. Like there have been, I swear, there's at least one of these years. It might have been the year where they had that song, that Lady Gaga song, Till Happens to You, from the uh, Kirby Dick documentary, The Hundred Grand. I believe she was, like, favored to win that year and, like, lost. <laughs> and, like, on like, her eighth nomination, and, like, the narrative was, give Diane Warren the Oscar. She's been nominated eight times. <laughs> and the Academy was like, no. No. So Armageddon had a budget of $140 million, uh, which is... <laughs> massive 1998 140 million that's insane that is that is obscene uh it it grossed 201 million in the u.s and had a worldwide gross of 553 million so yeah you know it uh, made a little bit of money probably probably i mean making that amount today on a like a, the blockbuster of this magnitude on a 140 budget making 550 would be seen as like an unmitigated disaster yeah 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 I like don't... if you're not coming close to a billion on that that would be a that would just be a complete take it as a complete write-off so yeah that's that's armageddon it's not a very good movie 
despite the fact that I went on 11 sidetracks about it and didn't actually talk very much about the movie at all, I do think it's weirdly a movie that there is a lot to talk about with. Yeah. Sometimes I, mean, I didn't just say it a lot, but... It's, uh, it's inherently watchable. Mm-hmm. Was... Like, or at the very least, you, it's, you, can't take, you can't take your eyes off it. <laughs> yeah, that's, you, uh, that's something. You might even say that you don't want to miss a thing. Oh, <laughs> on the, on that note, I think we I think that's a good place to uh, wrap it up this month. I hope everyone is remaining safe and sane this summer. And I know it's tough, but someday we'll all be able to experience the joys of the theater again. If you have a moment, please consider reviewing us on iTunes. That would be super helpful. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 90s Pod, and feel free to shoot us an email with your 90s memories at 90s at filmpulse.com. For Ken Bakley, my name is Adam Patterson. This has been Saved by the 90s. Bye, everyone. Um, Wash your hands and wear a mask. 